Could we have chart 11? Simeon, please. If we look for a moment at chart number 11, we can see that at the end of the sixth trumpet, there are two parenthetical visions, technically within the sixth trumpet. Then immediately after the seventh trumpet is sounded, there is another larger series of parenthetical visions, even before the first bowl of wrath is poured out, which is narrated in chapter 16 of Revelation. Traditionally, the events described between Revelation 11:15 and 15, chapter 15:8, a pretty good chunk have been placed at the mid-tribulation point, three and one-half years in. With the two we will be looking at in this session, the angel with the little book and the two witnesses, a parenthesis at the end of the sixth trumpet. Now, just as a reminder, I, I call these parentheses because most commentators will call them interludes. Well, to me, interlude means sounds like just kind of checking out for a while, laying by the creek bed and catching crawdads. We did that in grade school too. But this isn't checking out. In fact, these so-called interludes really give us very valuable, important information, very often set out of the narrative. So I've called them parentheses. Very often you put important things in parentheses, it just breaks the line of thought. My intention is to place less emphasis on the midpoint time frame. In some respects, this can be a bit artificial in regards to some events. In others, it's of specific, even critical importance. So I'll be addressing each parenthesis on its own merits, determining for each whether it should be seen as following the timeline or pointing to something occurring either prior to the narrative or later in the eschaton. Now, if we could have number 14, please, Simeon. In this session, we'll be looking at the first of two parentheses at the end of the sixth trumpet, both of which, although including some rather mystical, even confusing elements, seem to fit neatly into the timeline. That is, the first, the first parentheses purpose and events follow chronologically between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And the second is grounded solidly in the tribulation's midpoint. So if we could hand out uh, number 14.
Thank you, gentlemen. The first thing that happens in our narrative in verse 1 is the angel appears. Let's read this. Revelation 10, verses 1 to 2. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. So verse 1, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, And the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet pillars of fire. More than a few scholars would have us believe that this is Christ Jesus himself. For example, a scholar I have cited on a number of occasions, Seiss, believes this is Christ. Absolutely. Primarily because of the similarities, not identical, but similar between this angel's appearance and descriptions of Christ elsewhere. For example, in the first chapter of this book, chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. And we should admit that most angels in Scripture are not so gloriously or powerfully presented as this one. But there are a number of solid reasons to understand this figure to be just as described in the text. Another angel. For example, here once again we have John using the Greek alon, which means is translated another, which means another of the same kind. That is, another angel like the trumpet angels, or perhaps in reference to the strong angel of 5 2, chapter 5, verse 2. If it were Christ, he probably would have used heteros another of a different kind. Also, John always, uses, John always uses a distinctive title when referring to Christ in the Revelation. He doesn't call him an angel. John uses terms like the Lamb, Word of God, etc. For him to refer to Christ here as just another angel would be extraordinary and out of character. John says this is another strong angel, angelon iskuron. Nowhere in the New Testament is Christ Jesus called an angel. New Testament. And elsewhere there are strong angels mentioned that are clearly not the Lord. Here the angel swears, quote, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it. Since Christ Jesus is God, he would not have uttered this, as the angel did. 
but would have instead sworn by himself. See Hebrews, Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 14. Finally, this angel descends and plants his feet on the earth. If this were Christ, it would not be in accord with multiple prophecies of Christ's return. It would add in another. An unprophesied return. No, this is a strong angel. Either one of high rank and power or one with a powerful voice for making proclamations. Either way. Or both. Just as the text says, John's description emphasizes the angel's holiness and power to execute judgment. If one is still hung up on the grandeur of this angel, his glorious description, let, re, let me remind you that there is another strong angel described in such glowing, glorious terms. Quote, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond the beryl, the onyx, <clears throat> and the jasper. The lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. This is, of course, a description of the strong angel Satan before unrighteousness was found in him. I take the position that this is not this angel is not the Christ. But there are some tantalizing similarities found in Daniel's <laughs> I'm still working on this. I wish I was back in my little room. Found in Daniel's visions between this angel and the archangel. Please turn to Daniel 12. Daniel 12, let's begin with verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. A clear reference to the tribulation, the time of Israel's trouble. Now, verses 6 to 7. 
And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Another reference to the tribulation, but now note where he stands and swears with his hand uplifted to God. Very similar. Now verse 2. And he had in his hand a little book which was open, or scroll, as the ESV has. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. We'll return to the little book shortly. We will not miss that. But right now, let's focus on the posture and placement of this angel. His posture is one of authority. And it's a bit extraordinary that his right foot, the strong foot, the, the side's you know, God's right hand, that's his strong hand, that's his might, his power, is on the sea. Usually the sea comes after the earth, but in this passage, it's always the sea first, and that's where his right foot is. His posture is one of authority, and his placement, his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, implies a position of power and authority over the entire earth both sea and land. Note that no less than three times in this scene, when the angel is referenced, it includes the descriptive who stands on the sea and on the land. Three times. That means it's important. Now, the seven peals of thunder. Let's read Revelation 10, verses 3 to 4. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. For me, just about every week I give publicly public thanks to God for revealing himself to us in his word. This passage is just one more confirmation that our God, the triune God of heaven, is unique among all the other supposed gods of history and the only true God. For only he has put down in written form the facts of his character, his ways, his purpose for mankind, all for the edification of his followers and so that others might be drawn to him. Only Yahweh has done this. Yet, there are things about our God that are not written down in his word. And even in this last book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation, Apocalypsis, 
the revealing, the uncovering, pulling the veil away. Even here, not everything is revealed. As we'll see, some things are explicitly held back from us. Some mysterions remain. Verse 3, And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Time and again in the Bible, God or his representatives or messengers establish their authority with loud commanding sounds or words. Actually, sounds and words. We can imagine the Israelites gathered at the base of Mount Sinai holding their ears against the sounds of thunder and trumpet coming from God. Exodus 19.16, so badly that, so hard on them that they said, no more, don't do this again. Moses, you do it. You're elected. This time John describes the voice of the angel as when a lion roars which for anyone in close proximity, it would certainly set one back on, its, on his heels. Here, however, the purpose of the angel's roar seems to, be, seems to be to call forth the seven peals of thunder. Now, we could go on and on about the number seven, seven peals of thunder. I've decided, chosen not to do that. Seven is an important number in the economy of God but it doesn't really bear on this on the situation. Again, as is so often the case, it isn't really thunder. But thunderous voices speaking intelligible words. Otherwise, John would not be tempted to put them to put them down. Verse four, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken. I was about to write. That's what he was told to do. So he was going to do it. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. I admit, I'm not sure what to make of it, but I find it interesting that all this having to do with the thunder, the thunder, the voices, Speaking with the thunder, etc., is all in the feminine voice in the Greek. That's to me kind of a head scratcher. I have no answer for it. I just thought I'd bring it up. If it's the voice of God saying this, doing this, why would it be in the feminine? He doesn't go to school here. But of course, that's not the takeaway. That's an aside. Why why did you bring it up? I don't know. What are we to remember from these two? What we are to remember from these two verses is that John, even though from the outset he was commanded by Christ Jesus himself to write down the things which you have seen, the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Write it down, John. Revelation 1.19, here in the first of two messages of which we will not be privy, 
John is told not to write down the words spoken by the thunder, but to seal them up. We're not given a clue as to what sealing them up means. It just means don't record them for posterity. Let us be clear that we thus do not and cannot know what the thunder said. There's no reason to try to guess. No conjecture will be fruitful. But there is a psalm that many commentators reference in connection with this passage. Note that as I read it, not just the mention of thunder, but also that seven times the psalmist writes the voice of the Lord, that is Yahweh. First, he calls upon Israel. Psalm 29, please, let's turn there. Psalm 29. <clears throat> First, he calls upon Israel to ascribe to, that means to regard as belonging to the Lord. When we say we ascribe something to God or for, to Christ, it means we are acknowledging that that's who He is, that that is what He does. We, we acknowledge publicly that that is His quality. Ascribe it to Him. And first He calls upon Israel to ascribe to the Lord qualities of strength and mystery. Psalm 29, verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the Almighty, sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Now, then, then David proceeds to narrate how the Lord sounds as he uses these qualities. Verse 3, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Surion like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in His temple, everything says, Glory. And we might add to this Job 37.5, God thunders with His voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Next we have the oath. Let's read verses 5-7, to seven, please. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven 
and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Now let's work our way through this. There's a lot to consider here. Perhaps more than you might imagine, perhaps even more than you wish I would deal with. Verses 5 and 6a. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Here we have probably the best evidence that this is not Christ Jesus. He is swearing by someone higher than himself. The Son of God would not do this. 6b, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. Again, in this description of the one in whom the angel makes his oath, he describes as much the Son as the Father. Colossians 1, 15-16. And just what is this oath so important that the angel swears to his veracity by the Godhead? 6c, that there will be delay no longer. King James Version has that there should be time no longer. That's King James is the outlier here. Let me read what Walford writes about this. This expression, chronos, has sometimes been misunderstood to mean that time will cease. The expression here, however, does not refer to time as a succession of chronological events. Rather, it means that time has run out. That is, there, that there will be no further delay, which is how most of our modern versions, except for the King James, even the New, New King James has it, Delay no longer. <clears throat> Walvard continues, The end is now to be consummated. Even in eternity, there will be a time relationship in that one event will follow another. That's John Walvard. Now, let's pause here and dig a little deeper. This is a dramatic moment in the narrative. But the drama and impact of the statement is tempered by the fact that this is a slippery concept. By this I mean, for example, at various places in Scripture, quote, the day of the Lord, end quote, refers to the last things as a whole, as the tribulation, as the worst days of the tribulation, as the rapture, or as, as Christ's second coming. All of these are referred to as the day of the Lord. In our first session, I made the case for the last things, the eschaton being inaugurated by Christ's first parousia, which means coming or presence, in Bethlehem. I made the case for 
the last days beginning in Bethlehem. Some, however, say it's at his baptism. Some say it is death or resurrection, while others say it the rapture of the church. In various places, stated in different ways, it is implied that, okay, time's up. This is it. You're in for it now. As here, there will be delay no longer. And in the next verse, quote, the mystery of God is finished. Implying this is it. This is the end. <clears throat> the next verse pinpoints this moment at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Yet, after that, we still have the seven bowl judgments. Christ's return, Armageddon, et al., the millennium. Look at what is proclaimed immediately when the seventh trumpet sounds. Chapter 11, verses 15 to 17. Last one, Scott. Put your feet up. Revelation 11, 15 to 17. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord, God Almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Begun to reign. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Past tense. Done. Yet, this is pronounced well before Christ returns and takes his throne with all the bowls of wrath yet to be poured out. Before I draw this to my point, let's look at verse 7. <clears throat> but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, don't miss that days, don't miss that plural. Note that plural. The period of the seven bowls will take it, will be days. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Now, what's my point with all this? Just this. My strongest overarching conclusion, after all just stated, and after reading the conclusions of others regarding there will be delay no longer and the mystery of God is finished, is that the book of Revelation represents not just the events and orders, order of the final days, that is the culmination of God's plan, but represents as well 
how God perceives these final days. How God perceives these final days. The evidence from the revelation is not just that God is omnipotent, completely in charge of His creation, and completely able to mete out wrath and justice. Not just that Christ Jesus is ultimate Lord, before whom all knees will ultimately bow. Philippians 2.10. But that God has His own unique perception of all this. He does not see as we see. He does not count time as we. For Him it is fluid, ever-changing, circling back upon itself. It does not run in a straight line as we see history, as we even see the future, as we're trying to lay out these events in the final days, the last things. Our mind wants it to be in a straight line, orderly. I contend that's not God's mind. That's how He presents it for us. Because we're human, He presents it for flesh. But His mind... (laughs) In His mind, something can be already in a state of completion when to us it is still in process. He does not... He's not just aware of the past and the future and the present. He dwells there. It's all to Him now. So even if something has not yet begun, He can see it as finished. So, yes, we can agree that this passage means, as others have suggested, the mystery of God is His purposes for man and the world as revealed to both the Old Testament and New Testament prophets. Johnson. As David Guzik writes, quote, in this context, the mystery of God probably refers to the unfolding of His resolution of all things, the finishing of His plan of the ages, end quote. Or that the mystery of God is the secret of His allowing Satan to have his own way, and man too. That is to say, the wonder of evil prospering and of good being trodden underfoot. Which is where we're living now. William Kelly. Or it could refer to Ephesians 1.10, as John MacArthur writes, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven, heavens and things on the earth. We can agree with those and perhaps other definitions for these phrases. Beyond that, however, this passage means that in the eyes and understanding of God, Jesus could declare even at the outset of His earthly ministry in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. Even though most scholars will say the ultimate, final, absolute fulfillment of the kingdom of God is when Christ returns the second time. After the tribulation. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. By our measure, that's not quite true, is it? But in God's eyes, in Christ's eyes, you bet. And in Psalm 2.7, we have the familiar prophecy of a messianic king. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. All the verbs in that are in the perfect tense. The Hebrew perfect tense corresponding to our past tense. Meaning the action is completed. So the today in that refers to a point in time prior to the psalm's writing. Yet this was written probably about a thousand years before Christ. Prophecy, of course, it's prophecy. We accept it as that, of course it is. But it's written not that it will occur at some point in the future, but as if it has already occurred. Because, I would contend, that in the mind and perception of a God who dwells outside of time, it has. Thus, I conclude, we cannot, we should not try to require the text and events in the Revelation to always obey an earthly human perception of time and sequence. Nice, neat little soldiers. Now it's time to look more closely at this little book. <clears throat> Let's read verses 10 8 to 11. I lied, Scott. There's one more. One more day in purgatory for me. <clears throat> then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That's the last one. Verse 8, Then the voice which I heard from heaven I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. We now hear again from the voice that earlier forbade John to write down the words of the seven thunders. Now the apostle is told to take the book, the aforementioned little book or scroll, doesn't really matter which. I've chosen to show it as a scroll, but my version has book. 
take it from the strong angel. And we're again reminded that he stands on the sea and on the land. Yes, we know where he is. Here it is just the book, right here in verse 8, in the better manuscripts. But all other mentions of it in verses 2, 9, and 10 have little book because the Greek is Bibliridion, which is the diminutive form of Biblion, which is book. We get the word Bible from it. Because of this and because of what happens to it, most scholars, but not all, conclude that this is a different book or scroll from the one with the seven seals in chapters 5 and 6. Not everyone agrees, but most say this is different, and I believe it is. Verse 9, So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. No matter how imposing, even terrifying the appearance of the strong angel, which is the standard operation when angels show up to humans, they're, they're scared. Just as any of us would in the same situation, John in this vision obeys the voice from heaven. You bet. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. This is not something new to God's word. The same thing was done to the prophet Ezekiel. The same imagery of eating the words of God was mentioned by Jeremiah. And David in Psalm 19 sings that, quote, the judgments of the Lord are sweeter also than honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, end quote. Let's look at the Ezekiel passage. Ezekiel chapter 3. Let's read the first four verses of chapter 3. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach. Fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. The passage in Ezekiel is essentially parallel to our passage in Revelation. For in both a document is eaten and then follows a command to Ezekiel from Yahweh, to John from the angel and or the voice from heaven, or both, to carry those words to others. That's the point. That's the point of eating the words so that they can be passed on to others. The extra part in Revelation is the Bitterness, that's not part of Ezekiel. Verse 10, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Two questions remain for us. Neither of which can be answered with certainty. 
What is the content of the little book? If we make the logical assumption that the content feeds the eater with that which will be required for the second command in verse 11, and they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Well, then the answer is dependent on how the second command is interpreted. If that command is to prophesy, which just means to tell forth. It doesn't have to mean telling the future. It just means to tell forth. If the command is to prophesy for the purpose of saving as many as possible from, quote, many peoples and nations and tongues and kings, then the eating of the scroll represents the ingestion of God's word and specifically in the Revelation scene, the gospel, sharing the gospel to save as many as possible who are left before the final end comes. And those words are indeed sweet. As the psalmist writes, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Psalm 119 Verses 129 to 131. If, however, the command is a recommissioning of John for the task he's already about, the recording of the apocalypse, then the book could contain those events or an understanding of them. In other words, it, some say it could, it could contain all that's about to happen, the seven bowls and all that. The second question would be, why the bitterness? This was not part of the Ezekiel experience. Here it may add weight to the possibility that the content of the book pertains to the judgments to follow. Because I, I would hazard a guess that even in this room, we may say, isn't it? We heard the gospel. We belong to Christ. We don't have to worry about this. We don't have to experience it. Yet, at the same time, we can mourn over those that will. Because we've been describing, and it gets only worse, horrendous times. So we can, that could cause bitterness in it. It makes our belly ache thinking about that. Anything that reveals the power and glory of our Almighty God is something sweet to those who love Him. But if that entails something like the harsh judgments of the upcoming seven bowls in which many more will suffer and die, this would add to the sweetness a layer of bitterness, even sorrow. Let me close <clears throat> with some of John MacArthur's conclusion. Here's what he writes. The word in verse 11, again, indicates John was being commissioned a second time to write the rest of the prophecies God was going to give him. 
What he was about to learn would be more devastating than anything yet revealed and more glorious. He was to be faithful to his duty to record all the truth he had seen and would soon see. So John is to warn of all the bitter judgments coming in the seventh trumpet and the seven bowls. He was to write the prophecies and distribute them so as to warn all people of the bitterness of judgment to come and of death and hell. This chapter presents an interlude of hope tinged with bitterness that reminds all Christians of their evangelistic responsibilities to warn the world of that day. It's John MacArthur. In our next session, we'll be looking at the two witnesses of chapter 11. Our Father God, we are indeed sobered by this. These are words of your glory, your majesty, your power, your thundering voice. And we quake at that, yet we love it. For you are our God, you are our Lord, you are our master. But we also sorrow. We weep over those who refuse to bow before you. To the end, experiencing all of this, and to the end, they refuse. We pray, Father, that there are more names written in your book of life than we can imagine. Even those that we wonder about, or maybe we are sure they do not know you. We pray they do. So they will be saved from this torment and from the final and eternal torment of the lake of fire. Meanwhile, we exalt you. We glorify you. We thank you. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, the name of Jesus. Amen.